There was a young Christian who had been converted from being a Muslim, and he's about to go home. He's telling his American friend, when I turn home, there's a good chance they will kill me before I can ever make it back to America. His friend was confused and asked why. He said, because when I go back, I can't help but tell my family and friends about the new life I found in Jesus Christ. Some have already disowned me. One said, if he sees me again, he'll kill me. And if they report me to the government, then you will probably never see me again. You see, this young Muslim convert to Christ knew what we so often forget in the West is that not only is Jesus worth living for, he's worth dying for. You know, what a, what a contrast between this kind of boldness that, that people had for Jesus when we feel a little uncomfortable with that, but we never hesitate to talk about our favorite football team or the latest Netflix show or most anything else. You see, it's okay in our culture to talk about most anything else except Jesus. It, it, it's okay to, to talk about Jesus as long as you don't bring it up publicly. It's okay for you to live for him as long as you stay silent about it. And just as we've just heard from the story from Darren, sometimes even in America today, we're not welcomed at the table. Just a couple years ago, there was a lady who was nominated to be a cabinet position in in Washington, D.C., and there actually was a prominent senator who objected to her for no other reason except that she was a Christian. I went to a conference just a couple weeks ago where there was a, a speaker from Africa, and he was bold and amazing and so full of prayer in the Spirit. And by the end of the conference, he said, I want you guys to know, I'm not trying to offend you, but we now in Africa are sending missionaries to America. Why? Because in America, it's become so easy for us to be chameleons. It's some, become so easy for us just to stay silent. You can get in trouble at the workplace if you say too much about Jesus. In the military, certainly there are lots of things that tie your hands. At school, in your neighborhoods, in the public square. Jesus knew he would divide people. Jesus said that. He said, I'll even divide families. We need an example of someone who teaches us how to be bold, how to speak out. This morning, we're looking at another character in Scripture Today we go to the story of Nicodemus. Here's a man who moves from confusion about Jesus to bold, bold confession. So we're going to look at three snapshots of Nicodemus found in the Gospel of John. I want you to follow along with me. Let's start in John chapter 3. It's an incredible story here. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. Guys, this man has everything going for him. He is prominent. He's got an important position. He's religious. He's one of just a few Pharisees and even fewer members of the Sanhedrin. But obviously there's something missing in him, and he knows it. And so he's heard these rumors about Jesus, and he decides he's going to check it out. Look at verse 2. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi... We know that you're a teacher who's come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. So he comes to Jesus and I've heard about the miracles. I've heard about the people. I can imagine, can you imagine the conversation that Nicodemus had with his wife the night before? 
She said, well, where, where, where are you going tomorrow? Oh, I'm, I'm going to talk to this new rabbi, Jesus. And she says, do you not know he hangs out with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners? They're not our kind of people. Don't do that. And Nicodemus says, man, I've got I've to find out. So he comes to Jesus extremely humble. He compliments Jesus in a great way. Now, when we get to the next verse, Jesus completely neglects his compliment. Look at verse 3. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. He, 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 he flies right by the compliment and says something that had to be jarring to Nicodemus. You ever had that happen? I remember years ago I lived here. There was a prominent person who moved here to be head of a Christian institution. I felt like it would be a good thing for me to go meet him. So I set up a meeting in his office. I go in. I shake his hand. I tell him all the good things I've heard about him. He says not a word about that. His first words were to me, young man, I would love to still be addressed that way. Young man, I got problems with you. First thing, I thought, man, dude, you've read how to win friends and influence people. I mean, you, you man, what, what a way to start. And imagine Nicodemus, Jesus says, hey, you're not just coming to a different teacher just to learn a few new things. You, you don't need a few steps, Nicodemus, to improve your life and to reach your potential. You need to start all over again. Can you imagine that being said to a member of the teachers, the, the Sanhedrin? And then Nicodemus says, well, how can someone be born when they're old? Sure, they cannot enter a second time in their mother's womb to be born. Jeez, I don't get this. I can't, how, can, how are you born again? Then Jesus gets more specific. Very truly, I tell you, no, unless you enter the kingdom of God, unless they are born of the water and the spirit. Flesh is birth to flesh. I understand the physical birth. But the spirit gives birth to the spirit. You shouldn't be surprised at what I'm saying. You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone born in the Spirit. Nicodemus, this is not something you can academically figure out. This is not something that you can control on your own. This has to do with the Spirit of God that you can't always see Him moving, but you can see what He does to you. And the Spirit is moving in your life. Nicodemus says, how can this be? And then Jesus says, you're a teacher, an Israel's teacher, and do not yet understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we've seen, but you still people, you people still do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe, but then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? And then he says a shocking verse, no one has ever gone to heaven except the one who came from heaven, that's me, the Son of Man. Jesus claims right there on the spot, I'm more than just a nice neighborhood rabbi, I am the Messiah, I am the bridge, I am the priest between you and God. And then he alludes to a really weird Old Testament story, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. There's all these snakes in the wilderness, and God sets up a snake on a golden, a golden snake on a pole. And whenever the people see all the snakes, if they look up by faith, they will be healed. And Jesus said, here's what's going to happen to me. I'm going to be lifted up. Now, Nicodemus had to know what that meant. 
that meant to be lifted up on this cross. He says the Son of God must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. And then here's the most famous verse in all the Bible in this context. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Excuse me, but guys, I've studied this a long time and I've not put together well that this incredible verse that we would say, man, John 3.16 is for some vile, rebellious sinner. And Jesus says, John 3.16 is for people like you and I that are religious, just not completely getting it. So we see this first encounter with Jesus and Nicodemus. And then if you flip over a couple more pages in John, we're going to see the next encounter. Not only does he meet Jesus in the dark, now he steps out a little bit into the shadows. John chapter 7, Jesus is claiming some bold things about himself. The teachers and the lawyers are beginning to get uncomfortable with someone with such claims. He's beginning to mess some things up because everybody's wanting to follow him. So they're trying to decide what to do with him. Look in verse 45. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? I mean, he, he needs to be brought in. The guards replied, no one's ever spoke the way this man does. We've just never heard anything quite like this. You mean he deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? Those of us who really know the law, we're not believing. Literally, they know Nicodemus is beginning to believe. No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law There's a curse on them. And then Nicodemus steps a moment out of the shadows. Nicodemus, who'd gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asks, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he's been doing? You're going to condemn this man with no evidence? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you'll find out that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. They just ridicule. They're not understanding the prophecies in the Old Testament. They do talk about the Messiah coming through Galilee. They, they've forgotten that. But to Nicodemus, they're saying, Nicodemus, you need to be quiet about this, man. And as far as we can tell, Nicodemus sort of shuts down. I mean, he quotes this piece of legal wisdom. You need to give this guy a chance. Let's give it some time. And then he moves on. But can you imagine what's going on in Nicodemus' mind and his heart? He's met Jesus in the dark. He started to investigate him. He stood out for Jesus in the shadows. And now finally, we're going to get to the third and final portrait of Nicodemus in John's gospel. And that's where Nicodemus steps out into the light. He's had to watch from the side as Jesus was lifted up on a cross. And as Jesus had also predicted, when I'm lifted up on this cross, I'm in draw people to myself. There's a power to my love that nothing else has. And Nicodemus has been drawn and drawn. And so finally, no longer can he be silent. No longer can he be quiet. No longer can he live in the darkness. When Jesus dies, him and another member of the Sanhedrin, Joseph of Arimathea, they have a tomb and they go and request to Pilate that they can take the body of Jesus and bury it. 
There's a great reading about this in one of my favorite books called Moments with the Savior. And Carter Moles is going to come right now and he's going to read that. Pay close attention to these lines, this meditation on what's going on in this scene. Darkness entombs Jerusalem. A great light has gone out of the world. Jesus is dead. Normally, the dead are left on a cross for food for the vultures and wild dogs as a tactic reminder that crimes against the empire don't pay. But the religious leaders have asked that the bodies be removed before sundown, before their holy day begins, especially since this Sabbath is the holiest of days for them, Passover. Such irony. So callous in their killing of the Savior, yet so careful in their keeping of the Sabbath. Ironic also that these religious leaders come to bury Jesus, two who didn't consent to the plan. The men are two of Israel's most influential, Joseph of Arimathea, a rich and prominent member of the Jewish ruling council, and Nicodemus, also a member of the council, a Pharisee, and a preeminent teacher in Israel. They're good and upright men waiting for the kingdom of God. They're seekers of truth, which is why they had sought out Jesus. Nicodemus had come to him at night with his questions. Joseph had become a disciple, only in secret for fear of the Jews. Both have kept their relationship with him in the shadows. They feared the controversy and the consequences of making their faith public. But now that Jesus is dead, a new boldness emerges in their lives. Joseph goes directly to Pilate for permission to give Jesus a proper burial. It's a Pilate the very man who sent him to the cross. Permission granted, Joseph comes with the linen, Nicodemus with the spices. They hurry, as Jesus must be buried before sundown trumpets in the Sabbath. Coming to the cross, they're stunned to the view of the lifeless slump of a torn flesh that was once such a vital savior. A sudden wave of emotion crashes against them, and they fall to their knees. They weep for Jesus. They weep for the world that did this, and they weep for themselves. For all, they did, for all they didn't say, for all they didn't do, for all the times that they stayed in the shadows. Joseph plants a ladder under the crossbeam and ascends with uncertain steps, timidly at first, for this is not the work of a rich man. He wrestles with the stubborn nail in Jesus' wrist. Nicodemus watches from the ground. His robe is swept by a sudden gust of wind. And the words Jesus spoke to him in that one windswept night wrestle in his mind. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Lifted up. Words thumb through the encyclopedic mind and come to a stop in Isaiah. The prophecy of the suffering servant. My servant will be lifted up. Awkwardly, Joseph lowers the body into the waiting arms of Nicodemus, who steadies himself under the weight. His arms tremble as they wrap around Jesus' lacerated back, slick with blood. They put the body on the ground and stand back to get a hold on their emotions. They survey the damage the Romans have done. The body lies there, pathetically, in a twisted pose. His head punctured from Jerusalem thorns. His face swollen and discolored from Roman fists. His shoulders pull out a socket from the pendulous weight of the last six hours. His hands and feet bored and rasped by seven-inch spikes. Exposed raged muscles and white bone. His back and his ribcage clawed from a savage cat of nine tails. Nicodemus sees him before the incarnation of Isaiah's words. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and any form marred beyond human likeness. 
Nicodemus looks at the blood on his own hands and robe and pensively quotes from the prophecy, so he will sprinkle many nations. The two kneel beside the servant who has suffered so much, and they gingerly work their wet cloths over his bloodstained body. Nicodemus continues, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces, and he was despised and we esteemed him not. In the quiet courtroom of their hearts, they realized that loving Jesus in private was just another way of despising him and esteeming him not. And their hearts ache at the sins of their omission. Sponging down the rib cage, Joseph's hands touched the gouge made by the spear. He looked solemnly at Nicodemus as he too recalls Isaiah's words. He was pierced for our transgressions. The descending sun hurries their work. They wrap the body with strips of linen layered with aromatic spices. Both are ashamed for not doing more to prevent this brutal tragedy. They had influence. Their words carried weight. They could have objected more forcefully. They could have warned the disciples. They could have done something, anything. But no, they had their careers to worry about. Shouldering this guilt, they pick up the body to take it to Joseph's tomb. Suddenly, Nicodemus remembers one other thing from Isaiah's words. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. It's as if Jesus graciously gave him the verse. For as Nicodemus says, he looks at Joseph and they realize they have done something. They have spared the Savior the same, the shame of a criminal's birth. This is their most heroic hour. An hour when hatred against Jesus is most intense. An hour when friendship with him is most dangerous. This is the hour that the light-blooming love draws them out of the shadows and fearlessly befriend their Savior. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but didn't go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside, and he saw and believed. They still didn't understand the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then Jesus went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. Think about these two scenes. Think about what happens with Joseph and Nehemiah when this, as the author says, this late blooming love brings them out of the shadows. They are able to take down and to hold the body of Jesus. It's Passover. To hold the body of Jesus would disqualify them from being a part of the Passover meal, but it's of no worry to them. They have met and they are holding the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And can you imagine what it was like as Jesus resurrected and appears and all of life changes. You see, these men who had been secret disciples, if there is such a thing, 
have now come out into the light. They've moved from confusion to absolute confession. They're at a point where they don't care who knows what. All they know is they love Jesus. Look at this passage about boldness. Boldness comes from spending time with Jesus. Here's what it says about Peter and John, who also stepped out from their issues to stand up for Jesus. When the people saw the courage of Peter and John, And realized they were just like us, unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. My friends, what changed Peter and John, what changed Nicodemus, was slowly spending time with Jesus and seeing who he was. And it was that love that compelled them that says, I've just got to say it and live it. You see, courage, like we see on great display, is not a lack of fear. Courage is an abundance of love. I ask you this morning, what has Jesus done in your life? We had an incredible Bible class this morning with Darren where he talked about the gospel. He talked about evangelism. He made an incredible point that our issue is not evangelism, my friends. Our issue is, do we really embrace the gospel? Do we really believe who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us? That's what happens with Nicodemus. He comes from just a question you're scared to talk to Jesus in the light to, some who know, to someone who knows he was lifted up for him and resurrected for him and life can never be the same. So my challenge for you and I is not just that we go speak out. Our challenge is that we come to love Jesus to the point we can't help but speak. Let me give you some practical points as we conclude of how to spend time with Jesus. Write these down. You run with them. First of all, do what Nicodemus did. Investigate this. If you're wondering about Jesus, Jesus is open for questions. He's open for investigation. He didn't get mad at Nicodemus. And can you imagine when Nicodemus leaves these scenes, how he searches the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus? And I would challenge you today, if you spend any time in any section of the Bible more than others, stay in the Gospels. Go to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Whatever you're studying, don't ever go far from being in the presence of Jesus because in the long run, what will compel us to share is not guilt, it's not law, it's not obligation, it's simply we have encountered Jesus and we cannot be quiet about it. You also meet Jesus as we have here this morning in worship. There's something special when we all come together and we worship him. We meet Jesus in service. Jesus says in Matthew 25, when you encountered someone and you served the person in prison, the person hungry, the person thirsty, Jesus says, you encountered me. That's why I'm so excited about Love the City in a couple weekends that we get to go across the city. Hope you'll do it. And not only will you see people that are struggling, the promise of Scripture is that you will encounter Jesus. And then Jesus promises in Matthew 28, when we share the gospel, he is with us to the end of the world. And then this one may surprise us, but undergoing persecution is actually another way to spend time with Jesus. In a culture where it's not politically correct to believe what you and I do, or not even correct to lead a prayer and pray it in the name of Jesus. 
We may not have our life under threat, but we certainly have other threats. And yet the early disciples were so excited when they'd been beaten because they had been considered worthy to suffer for his name. And my friends, I'll tell you, in my life, and it's been very few times I've undergone much persecution, but it's in those moments that you most relate to Jesus and feel closest to him. And then above all, do what we've been doing today, stay at the cross. If the gospels reveal Jesus, the clearest picture of the God that we're called to serve and to follow is a God who dies on a cross in our stead. A God whose love is so amazing, it draws cowards out into the open to become heroes. Because when you get to know Jesus, it's just going to come out. It's going to be, how can I not? So I ask you this morning, is it time for you to step out of the shadows? Is it time for you to remember what Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 32? I love this promise. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge him before my Father who is in heaven. If you'll confess him, he will confess you. So this morning, maybe you're in the place of Nicodemus, and you need more than just a few points to improve. You need a new life. Today could be the day that you confess Jesus for who he is and that you are born again of the water and of the Spirit. And it's so dramatic, it's like a rebirth. Do you need that? Today could be the day. Or maybe some of us have experienced it because of the pressure of our culture. We begin to be quiet, we begin to be silent. And we need the church today to do what a young lady did in first service, say, pray for me to be bold. Here's the great news, guys, as we've walked through this story with Nicodemus and these three snapshots, is not only does Nicodemus meet Jesus, but Jesus meets Nicodemus. Jesus doesn't appear frustrated by where Nicodemus is or where he's not. Jesus simply takes him where he is and says, let's just keep on moving keep on looking at me, keep on investigating, see what I'm like. And Nicodemus finally on the cross sees this complete revelation of God and says, no longer can I live in the shadows. I'm going to embrace Jesus and I don't care what the consequences. My friends, if you love Jesus and you need prayers to be more bold, you won't be the first one. We can pray for you this morning. Please come as we all stand and sing.